Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event with UK award-winning investigative journalist Nick Davies. Nick is a special correspondent for The Guardian. He broke the phone hacking story in the UK, worked with WikiLeaks' Julian Assange to publish classified material in The Guardian, and has recently authored the best-selling Hack Attack, the definitive record of the investigation into Rupert Murdoch's newspaper empire and exposure of the phone hacking scandal. He joins New Zealand journalist Toby Manhire to discuss media ethics, journalistic malpractice and more, supported by Platinum patrons Rosie and Michael Horton. We hope you enjoy this session. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Auckland Writers' Festival. My name is Toby Manhire and this session is called Hack Attack, which by happy coincidence is also the title of a new book by <laughs> journalist Nick Davis. Um, it's a hell of a read, this book is, and if you don't have a copy already, you must go immediately after the session and buy one from the table downstairs, and then Nick will be sitting behind a table, and he will sign uh, whatever you like into the book. Um, but no checks. <laughs> well, not from you. No. <clears throat> anyway, sorry, keep going. We will talk for about, um, probably about 45 minutes, um, and then we'll have some questions, um, as opposed to statements, ideally. Uh, uh, everyone should turn their phones off, and anyone who's read this book will not only have uh, turned their phone off or turned it to silent, but will have made sure that the PIN code for their voicemail is no longer the factory setting. <laughs> Um, a big thank you to the sponsors for the event and especially Festival, Festival Platinum patrons Rosie and Michael Horton for making this session possible. Nick joins us today after a tour of the South Island where he's been talking about his book and his work. I have no reason to doubt that version of events, but I will note that his movements have matched almost exactly those of Prince Harry. <laughs> I think the only, the only reasonable conclusion to draw from this is that Prince Harry is a big fan and has been following him around. In fact, if you look closely, the person beside you could be Prince Harry in disguise. Um, as most of you know, Nick is an investigative journalist for The Guardian. His first day at the paper was in July 1979, yep. which happened also to be the first day of a man who would go on to be the editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger. Uh, Hack Attack, this book that I mentioned before, how the Truth Caught Up with Rupert Murdoch. It's upside down, it's the... He's just a beginner. Um, it's the culmination of more than five years of digging into the activities at the News of the World, Associated Newspapers. Uh, not Associated Newspapers, but the, the Associated Newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, at first, at first um, what was discovered was dismissed as the actions of one rogue reporter but it turned out to be a story um, that would shake the Murdoch Empire and pretty much every branch of the British establishment. Peter Oborn, a fantastic uh, conservative writer and columnist, small c conservative, says of Nick that his achievement in single-handedly telling the story about the barbarism and depravity of the British press when virtually everyone else was trying to cover it up is what makes him the greatest living British journalist. And so it really is a great pleasure <laughs> to have him here today. Um, Nick, let's... Can only go downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's stick with the royal theme to yeah. begin. Um, the hacking story, as it was, the phone hacking story, in many ways the ball started rolling because of an injury to another prince's knee, to Prince William's knee. Yes. It's very significant... The, the knee in question was royal because we're in two ways. First of all, so William's out there, he's doing something kind of manly and vigorous and injures the knee. He then calls in to the voicemail of one of his staff and says, hurt the knee, I think I need to see the doctor. And of course, we now know what they didn't know at the time, that the sad and lonesome figure of the royal editor of the News of the World, a man called Clive Goodman, was in the habit of listening to the messages that were left on the voicemail of the royal staff. And Goodman understood that in doing that, he was not only being unethical, he was actually breaking the criminal law. So when he wrote a story that was based on an intercepted voicemail, 
he always made sure he got it deliberately slightly wrong so as not to reflect its source. So on this occasion, he didn't say, William thinks he needs to see the doctor. He switched it and wrote, William last week went to see the doctor. Now, you remember, the knee is no ordinary knee, it's royal. And so without medical intervention, it recovered on its own. They have these kind of special powers. <laughs> the palace then went, why on earth would Goodman write that story? How could he possibly have got that idea? It's got to be the voicemail. That's the only thing. So they call in the police. And, and that's the second point at which the royal nature of the kneecap becomes important, which is that there are not very many people in British society who have more power and prestige than Rupert Murdoch. And the royal family just happened to be one of those rare groups. So if I had complained to the police that I thought the news of the world were listening to my voicemail, they would have said, well, can you find a door and use it? Off you go. But it's the royals, so there has to be a police investigation. And that, just to finish this part of the story, yields a result which, in retrospect, we can see was so uh, unsatisfactory that it's tempting to question uh, the moral rightness of the people who were running it. So what they said was, uh, here's a court case. They presented this in open court. Here, here's the sad and lonesome figure of Clive Goodman, the royal editor, just in brackets. I call him sad and lonesome because he, he was way past his peak. He'd obviously been pretty good when he was younger, but he'd got to a point where he'd run out of contacts, and his colleagues in the office had a rather unkind nickname for him. They used to call him the eternal flame because he never goes out. <laughs> so, so poor old Clive... Poor old Clive, desperately trying to get stories in this illegal way. He ends up in court with the private investigator, Glenn Mulcair, who'd been helping him to hack voicemail, because occasionally you need an investigator's help. And the police said, as you said, this is the one rogue reporter, poor old Clive. Here's the private investigator. And the grand total of victims of this crime is eight. And just so that you can see how far wide of the truth they were, a, we subsequently discovered that the senior hierarchy of the news of the world was systematically involved in organising this. And since then, the editor, four news editors and the features editor have all been convicted and various other side characters. And the police finally admitted that the number of victims wasn't eight, it was um, 5,500. And they knew that at the time. So and they went to quite some effort to sort of cauterise that part of the story, didn't they, to keep it siloed and self-contained. Well, so A, they made an effort not to disclose the crime that was being committed by the newspaper and, and the scale of it. And I do think that part of that was that they didn't want to get into a fight with this very powerful former Australian. But even within that, when they said, well, we've got to tell the court about the royal household being victims, they did this spontaneous, horribly British piece of deference where they said, all right, in court we'll identify three members of the royal household who are staff. We, the police, know that among the other victims was Prince Charles, Prince William, our friend Prince Harry, uh, Camilla, who's now married to Charles. But we can't use the names of the royal family in a riffraff, vulgar place like a court. So they, the police went to the palace and doffing their helmets said, Your Madge, we're not going to mention you in a public place. It's a really... This, the story's got so many levels, this whole phone hacking thing. And part of it, from at the beginning... Is, is that just enduring class nature of British society, which is so brazen and so embarrassing that the royal family don't have to say we don't want to be mentioned. The cops go and offer it as, as some sort of vocationary thing. In all those layers, the bit where you come into the story yeah. happens as a kind of coda to your earlier book, Flat Earth News, yeah. in which you have gone into the BBC Today programme, which is our morning report here, the equivalent, to give an interview about uh, that book, and particularly one chapter in it, pretty much the only chapter in it, if I'm right, that was really about reading. the tabloids. Yep. Um, and you give an interview, and then you get a call. Yeah. So, the short, so I wrote a book, I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, about falsehood, distortion, and propaganda in the media. I'm very tempted to do a quick loop. Can I do a quick loop? Quick one. Quick one. It's just that it's so interesting why we tell you stories which aren't true. And there are lots of different reasons for that, which is why it took a whole book to get on top of it. There's a subset of stories. This is, this is about Prince Harry. There's a subset of stories where news organisations establish almost an emotional angle which predetermines what the facts necessarily have to be, even if that's false. So we do this with war 
we have to support our boys. Our boys can commit war, crim war crimes up and down the country. We're not going to report it because we're supporting our boys. Not while the war is on. Big deaths we do it with. I mean, Margaret Thatcher died. She is the most unpopular Prime Minister in the history of Britain. We all reported it as a tragedy, as sadness. And then there's the royal family. Everybody around the world, including New Zealand, has to pretend that everybody is excited by the royal family. So, I was in Dunedin. Uh, I, I decided rather than fly up to the next events which we, where we were all speaking, various writers at Christchurch, I would drive. So Sunday morning, I'm driving towards Queenstown. And uh, the man in the radio studio says, uh, Prince Harry's in Stuart Island. Yeah? Everybody's very excited. And he goes to the guy on the ground. And the guy on the ground, and he says, are the people all gathering waiting for Harry to arrive? And the guy on the ground is an honest man. He says, well, uh, Harry's helicopter is actually landing at the moment, and there, there is a crowd, but it's, it's not massive. It's, it's 40. <laughs> so he's a good guy. The next day, when I read a respectable uh, newspaper from this country, it says, royal frenzy swept Stuart Island yesterday. <laughs> it's fiction. And then a few days later, I'm in Christchurch, and I went with my lovely publicist, Rebecca, to have a look at the frenzy. And it was, there was actually a little bit more frenzy than I was expecting. I reckon there were 400 people there. Rebecca says I'm exaggerating, which I'm allowed to do because I've got a press card. She says it was only 300. But what did the press report? Thousands turned up to see Prince Harry yesterday. It's really interesting. I mean, he's a nice guy, but you're a bigger crowd. I'm beating him. <laughs> <laughs> What, what on earth did you the, ask this me? This is the beginning of a great rivalry, I feel. <laughs> yeah. Um, everybody wants to marry him. That's what's I really had set, I had set this beautiful scene for you. What was it about? Of being in a radio studio. Oh, yes, that was about, a, sorry. I just sort you of... went to fucking Queenstown. Sorry. <laughs> I just thought it was maybe more interesting than the question you asked. So, okay. <laughs> let's, let's have a bit of... There is a kind of strange theme here, which is about the aggression of an arrogant elite. So the Murdoch company in Britain and perhaps elsewhere in the world had got used to the fact that it just had to keep growling and scratching and people would run away and it would have its way. And it, they just kept getting it wrong over the phone hacking saga. So stage one, uh, I'm on the radio talking about this book about falsehood, distortion and propaganda. It has a chapter, as Toby rightly said, about crime in Fleet Street. Up against me, they have a man called Stuart Cutner the managing editor of the News of the World, a, a dark and frightening person. And when we started talking about crime, he had a right go at me and suggested that I lived on a different planet, that I didn't know what I was talking about. And he said it happened once at the News of the World. It involved one person, and he went to jail. So that was a terrible mistake by Kuttner. Um, brackets, which ended up with him being prosecuted in the Old Bailey and sitting in the dock for eight months. Uh, but the nature of the mistake was that his aggressive dishonesty provoked a man I'd never heard of into getting in touch and telling me the entire story. People think it's terribly difficult being an investigative reporter. Actually, <laughs> the gifts fall out of the sky. The guy told me the whole story and was a guide throughout. But they then kept repeating. I hope I'm not getting too far ahead, but they kept repeating that mistake. So it took a long time to put together the first story. And I was working on other stuff alongside. I don't want you to think I was being idle. But... So July 2009, we published a big story which indicated the scale of crime at the News of the World and pointed out the implications. And within the next 48 hours, first the police, who were far too close to Rupert Murdoch, and then Rebecca Brooks, Rupert's then chief executive in the UK. She has a wonderful hair. They both came out and attacked us. The police effectively rubbished what we had written, even though they were sitting on the evidence that proved it was true. And Rebecca accused us of deliberately misleading the British people. It's a mistake left to our, our own devices. We would have followed that story up for a week or two and then gone off to the next exciting adventure. By putting our credibility at stake, they tied us into the story, made us carry on digging. And can I just give one more example of this? Go ahead. It's just that, that so we, we trundled along for another two or three months. And it was, it was oh, actually, okay, I'll be honest with you. What, what it was was that I met a really, really, brilliant woman, very, very clever, very beautiful, and she happened to live in Amsterdam. I'm single, you understand. So I, th and we started a little sort of thing. So I thought, this, well, this is important. So I went to see the editor, Alan, who started on the same day as me and who's remained a good friend as well as a good editor. And I said, Alan, I just think we're not getting enough stories out of Brussels. <laughs> you, 
Your geography is good. It's 60 minutes on a fast train. So <clears throat> he, being a good guy, said, okay, move to Brussels. So that was all set up. I was going to move to Brussels and do great stories and have a great romance every weekend in Amsterdam when the, our regulator, the Press Complaints Commission, which was feeble beyond justification and very much funded and controlled by the Murdoch company, put out a report defending the news of the world and accusing the Guardian of exaggerating the story. So, once again, their aggression trapped us into reporting the story. I never did anything from Brussels, and the whole romance rather went up the spout. <laughs> it's a tough life. So you had... Um, you see quite, the point apart apart from Brussels. Well, you had a sort of... It's almost hubris, isn't it, on the part well, of, on the part of uh, News International? Yeah. Um, but they were the ones that were driving the story forwards. Yes. Them and the Press Complaints Commission that you mentioned. Also the police, to an extent, yeah. weren't they? The police were stonewalling you and basically, I mean, they, they, they were insisting that there was nothing more to it, yeah, whereas it they was, must have known there was more. Sorry. Yeah, in, in that early stage, when Clive Goodman ends up being the only person in court that we've talked about, it's semi-justifiable in that the police unit that's investigating are the counter-terrorism police. That's because it involved the royal family and it was seen as a security thing. And I think they can reasonably say there were just so many more serious crimes that we needed to address once we'd, we'd locked up somebody, we'd dealt with it. But, but really, certainly, they should then have said, well, somebody else needs to pick up the job and finish it. And, and that bit of decision-making was then reflected even more so once we started running stories. It, it wasn't just that the police were stonewalling. They were actively running around the place telling press, public, parliament falsehoods about the truth about all this. I mean, and the assistant commissioner of Scotland Yard and then his boss, the commissioner, separately came in to see Alan, my editor, and he gave them tea and biscuits and they said, this is all rubbish, Nick Davis has got it wrong, you're just going to be embarrassed. And he, to his great credit, uh, he ignored them, which needs to be done with powerful people sometimes. But it, it, what this takes you into, actually it comes off the back of that aggression we were talking about, that f uh, on the whole, that Murdoch aggression was a very successful strategy in the UK. And it's interesting, if you, if you look, as the, the, just I want to take another step back, the reason the story is worth following, apart from that it's got amazing characters, and there is all this crime in the newspaper, it's about power. And when you look at the police and their failure, you, you see something which, which is actually about fear. And then you can follow that through, as the book does, but the Guardian stories didn't, into the corridors of power in government. And you can see a democratically elected government being distorted in its decision-making in a really scary way. And what is it that's making them do that? It's fear. But what's the fear of? Primarily, this is about a tabloid newspaper which specializes in exposing people's sex lives. So ordinary people, it's interesting this, I think, are not frightened of Rupert Murdoch. In, a lot of ordinary people, I think, feel sorry for him because he's got this pathological greed. He's ruined his life for the acquisition of money. He just doesn't... Was anybody here with Peter Williams this morning, whose book I've got, The Lawyer? He was talking, I thought, rather movingly about how, in his life, he'd set out to try and talk about justice and fairness and not to sell himself for money. Rupert's had a terrible life. He's massively rich, but so what? Anyway, the point is this. Fear. His new, within the power elite... People are frightened of him. That's because they've all seen other members of power, the members of parliament, captains of industry, trade union leaders, who've had this appallingly painful experience of their private lives, their sex lives, being splashed across the front page of one of his newspapers. And that's such a painful experience. In the book, I argue that it gives him a power rather like that of the playground bully, who once he's beaten up two or three kids, that, that's quite enough. All the other kids will get the message and they will then take the initiative. They will tiptoe around the bully and try to placate him. And that's the way that Murdoch's power works. So I don't think there is evidence of Murdoch's people in London calling the police and threatening them or, or, or telling them what to do. I think that just as they went to the palace of their own initiative and said, don't worry, we won't mention your names, power works in that way. They took the initiative. They didn't want to get into a fight with him. And ditto in government. Very often they're taking the initiative, distorting their own policy, in order to avoid getting into trouble with him. Except you had something more than that, mm -hmm. because that's all, I think, true, but it's Thank abstract you. in a way. Yeah. You had Andy Coulson, and Andy yeah. Coulson was a human being that almost provided a, 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 a personified link between the two, because here's a man 
who was at the News of the World and then went to Downing Street. Yeah. How important was Coulson, I suppose, in the telling of the story? Yeah, I think if, if the story had just been about journalists breaking a law, which is actually not a particularly significant law, this is quite a small crime, it wouldn't have been worth pursuing. It certainly wouldn't have been worth spending six years on. But uh, the, the, the Coulson factor instantly makes it important because this is the editor who was responsible for the newspaper when it was committing all this crime. He's left, he's gone to work for David Cameron, who was then leader of our Conservative Party and, and clearly very, very likely to become Prime Minister within 12 months whenever the next election was held. And that, that really lifted the significance of the story because if the source was right, and rapidly it, I could prove to myself that he was right, then that meant Andy Coulson, in denying the crime, was a liar. And his job, when David Cameron became Prime Minister, was to link, to communicate on behalf of the government with the people of the country. And th that really isn't a good place to have a liar. And I did also wonder what would happen if in that job he suspected that a cabinet minister was secretly leaking to a particular newspaper. Would he go back and hire private investigators to do illegal things to find out who was talking to whom? So I, th I think that lifted it immediately into quite a significant story, not just about journalists behaving badly. And, and in fact, Alan Rusbridge, the editor, had warned Downing Street about that appointment. I, didn't, yeah, as we were doing the stories, there's a two-year period between our writing the first one and everybody denouncing us and the thing finally exploding. During those two years, both Alan and the then deputy editor warned quite senior people in the government that the story was true and it was going to blow up in their faces, and they wouldn't listen. So, so I, I just think there's a sort of really crude logic at work there. We've got to have somebody from the Murdoch camp in our office if we're going to be able to run this country. So we can't go listening to what the Guardian is saying. I suppose it was, in a way, the Alistair Campbell model, wasn't it, in that he was seen as having worked for Blair, a former tabloid journalist, and Coulson was... Uh, Alistair Campbell image. being the spin doctor for Tony Blair. It's, it is different, actually. Alistair Campbell was incredibly talented at manipulating newspapers. He'd been a reporter for a long time, and he knew how to feed out information and give favours in order to try to get the coverage he wanted. So he's a classic spin doctor, but he isn't a Murdoch man. So when David Cameron hires Andy Coulson, he's getting two gifts in one lot of wrapping. So he, he's getting a man who really understands how to manipulate newspapers, but also he's getting his link to Rupert. And just to, to run ahead to the more recent events, you know there was a long trial in London that went on for eight months. And at the end of that, Andy Coulson was convicted and sent to prison. And that was potentially a very dangerous moment for our Prime Minister, because he was vulnerable to an attack from Ed Miliband to say, why did you hire a man who clearly reeked of crime? The answer is, you had to have somebody from Rupert Murdoch's empire in your office, and that immediately means you're not a straight politician. Miliband didn't say anything of that. He went for a much, much narrower angle, saying, I think your judgment is weak in not spotting that this man had criminal tendencies. But he didn't push home the Murdoch point. Why? Because he himself had had to give in to exactly the same logic he, Ed Miliband, the leader of the Labour Party, had hired a former Murdoch journalist called Tom Baldwin. Almost as soon as he became leader, he had to have Murdoch's man in his camp. So that basic structure of power and its implication was never drawn out after the trial. And therefore, after a day or two, Cameron was able to walk away from the crisis. It, 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 sorry, it's kind of depressing. Should we tell jokes? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be sort of even more depressing, I guess, in a way... Well, um, the, the, in terms of the way that the story unfolded, the, the moment that it really sort of got over into the big public consciousness mm -hmm. was when Millie Dowler became part of the story. And Millie Dowler in the UK was a huge story. She was a schoolgirl who went missing and ended up being discovered that she'd been murdered. Mm -hmm. And that was front-page front news on all the newspapers, especially the tabloids and mid-markets. You, you mean the, the original abduction The original, was. I mean, she was, she was firmly in people's minds already. Definitely. Everyone knew who Millie yeah. Dowler was. And then, pass to you. <laughs> so after two years of running stories, what's happening is that the rest of Fleet Street, running the national newspapers, is not picking up the ball and running with it. With, with a few honourable exceptions, they're not reporting it. Their readers just don't know about it. And the... the so then, two years into the track, we show that uh, this poor girl, who was a 12-year-old schoolgirl who was abducted and murdered the news of the world had been hacking into her voicemail. And that story has a natural emotional impact such that 
the newspapers who'd been sitting on their hands and refusing to join in had to join in. I mean, there was two years of pressure building up behind this, but they have to start reporting it. And then it was quite amazing because there was a chain reaction that should have happened much earlier where, just to explain to you, the other newspapers had failed to report the story for a, multiple, a multiplicity of reasons. One, those other papers were owned by Rupert, clear. And or they were committing the same kind of crimes. And or they support the Conservative Party and they didn't want to embarrass David Cameron over the Coulson connection. One very conservative newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, followed up our story about Millie Dowler with an amazing disclosure to the effect that the families of those people who had been killed by terrorists in the bombs in the London Underground in July 2005, those families had had their voicemails hacked by the news of the world. Now that's, I mean, it's disgusting. And then the following day, the Daily Telegraph again followed up with another story of equal impact that the families of British soldiers who'd been killed in Afghanistan and Iraq had also been treated in the same way. News of the World guys listening to their voicemails. And I don't know what the News of the World thought they were doing while they were doing that, but for the, anybody reading it, you just think, oh, God, you guys have got no boundaries. You've trespassed too far. Don't you understand that murdered schoolgirl, these people, it isn't okay. So there was this amazing, that, that chain reaction of stories produced an extraordinary atmosphere in London where suddenly everything was turned upside down. So for decades, really, since 1979, when Margaret Thatcher was first elected with Rupert Murdoch's help, the British power elite had kowtowed to him and had been scared of him. Suddenly, they were all popping out on radio and television saying, well, I never really liked the man. And they all changed sides. And, you know, um, George Clooney is making a film of all this. And it's partly because it's got such extraordinary characters in it, but, but one of the reasons is that there's a fluke here, which was that, that we're running along, we're like the little hobbits going to see the, take on the great dragon or whatever it is, and we're tutoring along on our little path for about two years. And the Millie Dowler story, finally, it blows up and the dragon's on the run. Okay, completely separately, Murdoch and his people were trying to put together the biggest deal in the whole history of his career, also the biggest deal on the planet that year, which was to buy that great big chunk that they didn't own of B Sky B, the satellite broadcaster. And it wasn't just that this was a hugely expensive deal, it was also very significant because their plan was that once they owned B Sky B, they would have cash flowing through. Its annual profit then was 8500 million pounds a year. And with that kind of cash flow, you can then borrow much, much more, and then they planned to buy either Time Warner or Disney, and then they would be the biggest media company in the world. So it just so happens that our little tootling along blows up at the same point as that deal was within days of finally, finally being approved by the regulator. And when all the power elite changed sides and said, we don't want anything to do with this man, the House of Commons then took a vote. It was actually none of their business to take a vote. It was up to the regulator as to whether or not that deal went through. But the politicians spoke out. And it was a really, really unusual moment. I don't know how often this has happened in history. Every single member of parliament voted for a resolution that said, back off B, Sky B. You have enough power. We, we, we do not think you should be allowed to do this. And the sheer, it wasn't so much a political as a moral impact of that, got through to the dark castle. And he said, okay, 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 I'll back off. It was the most extraordinary time. The other incredible thing that happened, if anything more incredible than that, was that this newspaper, famous newspaper, the highest selling English language newspaper in the world, in the, world yeah. the news of the world was shut down. Yeah, I, 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 I still don't really understand why. I mean, no. uh, I mean it well, took I everyone by surprise, but yeah. I still don't really understand oh, I can why, tell you what. strategically why. Yeah, so at the time, that was very alarming. So... Alan and I had never for a moment thought that he would throw hundreds of people out of work by closing that newspaper. We certainly hadn't wanted it or campaigned for it. And it was a, it was a very, it was a typically Murdoch thing to do. It, it was selfish and ruthless. At the time, I thought, well, he's trying to protect the position of his son, James, who was the chairman of News Corps in that part of the world, and his chief executive, Rebecca Brooks. When that eight-month trial was going on of Andy Coulson, Rebecca Brooks, and others, some emails were produced in court which showed actually it was a, it was a more specific thing than that. They were, they, they were desperately trying to hang on to that B Sky B deal, that huge thing. And they thought, if we close the news of the world, 
that may just be enough to buy us some political breathing room, a little bit of political prestige back, so that that deal can survive and get over the finishing line. But, it, but whichever motive you look at, saving two jobs, sacrificing 200, or saving their deal, it was a very, very selfish, ruthless thing to do. And when that sort of sea change happened, and you talk about the vote in Parliament, the closure of the news mm. of the world, and, and that sense of a, of, a, of a shift in perception of Murdoch, no longer, you know, genuflecting or something. Yeah. I don't, have, you, I don't, have, you read, have you read Alan's book about um, playing the piano and, and this all is this my, comes into it? This is my editor, Alan Rusbridger, who, while we were doing WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and the phone hacking, while he's working so hard, he's like physically bowed over, was getting up half an hour early each day to practice this incredibly difficult piano piece by Chopin called La Ballade. And if you ask me, have I read it? I find it, I, I, I skim read it and read the bits about me, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well I, well, 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 I skim read it and read the bits about you. Okay, there you go again. <laughs> uh, and one of the bits sort of about you, I read the bits about, the, 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 about this case and about <laughs> the journalism, and he wrote uh, at the time in his diary, oh, yeah. it does feel that we've reached a watershed moment where the fear that one organisation has exercised over great swathes of public life for two or more generations may finally have lifted. And I wonder, reading that now, whether you feel as though that was overly optimistic. Yeah. I think that um, what happened was there was this two-week period where I tried to describe it once before. It was where it felt as though the children had taken over the classrooms and we were all dancing on the desks and whooping and the teachers were running off down the road outside the window. We were in charge. And, and that really symbolic moment, really, when this very powerful man and his son were called in front of a select committee. Now you're answerable, you guys, just for once in your lives. But the trouble is that the objective fact of that corporation's power remained really unchanged. So, okay, he closed a paper, but he quite soon opened another one to take its place. So he still owns four national newspapers and still owns the Sky News Channel. And simply that fact puts him back at the centre of power with, with, with all that flows from it by way of fear. So, I mean, it, we've, as you know, just had an election uh, in the UK, and during the campaign, the Sun behaved with extraordinary arrogance in an entirely illegitimate way. So it's okay for a newspaper to take a position on an issue. It, would be okay, it's, it is okay for a newspaper to say, in this election, we support candidate X and to write that in leader comments, to explain it, maybe to hire columnists to elaborate on it, even to cover the news stories, perhaps that's legitimate also, which show that your candidate in a good light. But they were going way, way, way beyond that. So, uh, well, so you, you, for example, it, there's an election campaign. Political parties who are really rather skinny little organizations bring in volunteers who will stuff all the leaflets through the letterboxes. All political parties do it. And those volunteers aren't paid. So the Sun ran a big front-page story observing the fact that the Labour Party had hired in volunteers without paying them. Slave Labour! It's just a smear. On this, you know, they did this thing where they had a photograph of Ed Miliband, who's a decent guy. I mean, he comes across badly on television, but he's not a bad man. He, but anyway, the photograph shows him eating a bacon sandwich, and his face is all twisted up. So they bang that on the front page, just, just to make him look bad. It's just, do you see what I mean? There are boundaries of legitimacy, which are okay in an election campaign, but they were way beyond it, still throwing their weight around as though it were up to them to decide what government we have. That's the point. The power yet, hasn't been diluted. And yet the same newspaper with most of the same <coughs> contents yeah. in Scotland, the Scottish edition, yeah. had, was, was cheering on well, this showed the, utter the Scottish National Party. Yes. So, so, so the question, I guess, really so is, are the, is Murdoch trying to drive and influence the result, or is he just good at picking the mood, and is he reflecting that mood? Okay, well, so there's always been that debate about Murdoch, whether he just spots winners. But, so, on this occasion, just so you understand, the Sun in London can see that the only way in which a Labour government could emerge from that election is if Ed Miliband's Labour Party, they, they were never going to have a majority, but if they teamed up with the Scottish nationalists, who were obviously going to win a lot of seats in Scotland, together in London, they might just have a majority. So the London Sun set about assassinating the character of the Scottish nationalists and their leader so that nobody would consider voting Labour in case these evil Scottish nationalists came in. And yet in Scotland, the Sun 
supported the Scottish Nationalists and ran masses and masses of copy to encourage its readers. So first of all, you can just see the sheer cynicism of it. There's no sort of rational judgment being made here. It's whatever works. And it isn't just a question of Murdoch saying, I think I know who's going to win, so I'll back them. Because what the opinion polls were saying in England was that Miliband was more likely to win than Cameron. If that was the game he was playing, he'd have supported Miliband. But he, he wasn't playing that game. He was saying, these are the governments I want. Just so you understand, the thing that moves Murdoch, that if, you, if you could open his heart, what you'd find in there is a cash register. Tickety-tick, tickety-tick, it's all about money. But, perhaps like a lot of people in the audience, he, he, his ancestors, the Scottish, and migrated, and he has a soft spot for Scottish nationalism and for Sean Connery and for that whole business. So I would say his position number one, we want a Tory government. Position number two, Scottish home rule. That, that would have a sentimental appeal to him. So, and, and then you can see this really twisted behaviour contradicting themselves from one side of the border to the other to on, please the old on man. The, on the character of Rupert Murdoch, though, yes. there are others who would argue that if you cut open your heart and examined the DNA, you'd find kind of... Uh, newspaper man stuff in there too and that yeah. although you say that his heart is ticky-tacking with the sound of a cash register yeah. maybe it's ticky-tacking with the sound of a printing press too and that he keeps the Australian and the Times and yeah. the Wall Street Journal to some extent alive so the argument goes because he loves that stuff do you yeah. buy that? No I think that's sentimental schmaltz put about by people who want to please him uh, I, really so I mean why, why does he keep loss making quality newspapers going well, you, you can go for the sentimental schmaltz answer, or you can say that helps him with his political power. So the Times remains, in, in London, a very respected, prestigious newspaper. It sometimes lets itself down, but he's going to get... So with the Sun, he's got the power from the fear. With the Times, he's got a platform for pushing and, and for, for putting his point of view. I don't, I don't want to actually... I'm in danger here of oversimplifying it. I think that if you talk to people who've worked for Murdoch at a senior level they'll tell you that he doesn't actually interfere very much in their work. He interferes with governments whenever it suits him. That's where the danger is. With his newspapers, I think he gives them a broad framework. There aren't many left-wing Murdoch newspapers. In fact, there isn't one. They kind of have to adopt that neoliberalism, the whole deregulated capitalism, low tax, low public spending, for better or worse. He will occasionally intervene on a particular story to score a point, to protect an ally, to achieve some objective. But it's relatively rare. But an election is one of the occasions when he will. But it's just that I was in danger, I felt, there of drifting into, into portraying him as a sort of Randolph Hearst figure who's always interfering. That, that, that actually wouldn't be accurate. There's probably one question which captures that a bit, which is if I were to ask you how the reviews of Hack Attack were in the Murdoch newspapers. Okay, there hasn't been a single bad review of Hack Attack in any Murdoch paper anywhere in the world because there hasn't been a single review. <laughs> I think there was a review, I'm not sure, in a newspaper called the New Zealand Herald, which is based in Auckland, which 15% uh, of that newspaper was purchased oh, yeah. very recently yeah. by Rupert Murdoch's companies. There might very well be a few New Zealand Herald journalists in the crowd. What would you say to them about the prospect of having Rupert Murdoch owning? Well, I met Shane Curry last night, the editor, and I was saying he's, he's not going to cause you a problem. I mean, the, the, the huge problem that all newspapers all across the developed world have is that the internet has busted our business model, taking away readers, taking away advertisers. That's a huge problem. And if anybody wants to put money into newspapers now, let them do it. But, but uh, Rupert is not going to interfere with the Herald's editorial line unless there's something very special going on. I, I, wouldn't, I really honestly wouldn't be worried about it. If he gets more of a percentage of the company, then the government need to watch their backs. What was that? Who was that guy you introduced me to last night? Is it Andy Little? Andrew Little. Andrew Little. He seemed like a nice man, but he needs to watch his back, particularly because he's got the word Labour written on his forehead. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I admit, so I, I, if, if there are Herald people here, I would say, don't worry, just get on with it. I mean, the big, the big beast is we can't afford to do our job anymore. And there's a, there's a little bit of a connection here. So nobody knows where the future of journalism may come from. And we need to recognize it's possible that we don't have a future. There, there is no God-given rule that says professions have to survive. When did you last see an arrow maker? Even a profession with as fine a man as Toby Manhar in it can die. So uh, the problem here is this, that we're very unpopular journalists. It's a cliche to say, well, you can't believe what you read in the papers. And therefore, there's a lack of uh, public anxiety about the fact that even if we don't die, 
Newspapers are reaching the point where they can't perform their essential functions. They, can't, they haven't got enough reporters to go out and find stories and, and check facts and do all those great things that we're supposed to be able to do. And it matters very, very much. But if you, if you say, well, why aren't the public upset about it? It is because the reputation of all journalists is damaged so badly by the behaviour of that tiny minority who do outrageous things, whether it's criminal and unethical things, invading your privacy, for example, or just routine falsehood and distortion. So do you see what I'm saying? The, 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 the whole thing ties up. And uh, it, it's, I mean, I don't want to sound too self-serving, but if you look at the sort of young people who want to become journalists, you, you'll find an impressive group of people. These are intelligent, idealistic, bright people. And they want to go and work as journalists so they can tell the truth about important things. It might just be reviewing music or reporting sport, or they want to get inside the political world, or they want to get into climate change. It, it attracts honest people. And yet, and that job is so important that if, if we do get killed off, people are going to say, hey, we should invent a new profession where we give people skills and resources to go out and find out what the truth is so that we can tell each other what's going on in the world. We could call them journalists. Whoops, too late, they're all dead. <laughs> Both, you see how it all ties up, though? The smearing of our reputation, I think, has become significant in that context. But those, those 20-something-year-old journalists who, yeah. who, who might read your books, might come to a session like this, feel inspired, and they might come up to you and ask your advice. Yeah. Um, but they also then have to go back to the newsroom and knock out five stories um, yeah. based on press releases or regurgitating other material, yeah. um, getting paid not very much money. They want to be doing what you're doing and have the luxury of having an right. editor that trusts you, right. a really long leash, months to work on a story. Right. Is, that, how, I mean, is there any way in which they can get to that position without a trust fund? No, so, I mean, I do acknowledge I, I'm lucky to be old. I, I, I'm lucky that I was working through newspapers and television at a point when the business models, respectively, were still working and people could give you the time and resources. I was lucky. But it, it isn't all over yet. There's still a lot to play for. So I think two things. First of all, if you're a young reporter going to work for a news organization, one of the skills genuinely that you need is office politics. So what happens in a newspaper office is that at the beginning of the day, all the executives get round to sit around a, a table. 99% of them will be white men. And they'll say, what should we put in the paper today? And then they organize everybody's time. If you're going to do things that are interesting, you need to have, have one of those as your mentor, as your defender. Someone who in that meeting, when they say, let's send Toby off to some ridiculous press conference involving a member of the royal family, then, then that, the, the, the executive says, no, Toby's working on an investigation that really matters about chemicals going into the water supply in Auckland or whatever it is. Give him time, he's going to come out with a big story. Office politics is terribly important. But there's a bigger thing here, which is so, this is all about the internet, taking away the readers, taking away the advertisers. And as it became clear that we were facing a really catastrophic threat, the first instinct of newspaper management was to draw in their spending. We've got less income, therefore we must spend less, so we can't do investigations and we can't do anything expensive. Let's all sit in the office and recycle the news. Now, intelligent news management, that's to say not Fairfax, are emerging from that phase and realizing that they've got it wrong. That what drives, the future is online. The printed paper in the next decade or two, they'll die out. Your newspapers will start to go national and they'll start merging. But what the managers are now learning is that people are not going to come to your newspaper website to read news. The train crash, the plane crash, you can read that on a thousand different sites. What brings people to the website is the unique, the special. So, for example, the world is globalized. The number of things which each of us needs to be able to understand has therefore enormously increased so that the collapse of the subprime mortgage market in Illinois can bust a bank in London and destroy the global economy. But there are so many things you now need to understand. That one thing, so if a newspaper has a columnist or columnists who can explain things to you, so that when you read that the housing market is booming upwards in Auckland, somebody can say, this is roughly how long that's gonna go on for, and then this is what's gonna happen next. Okay. Explanation by brilliant people is very important. And if it's unique to your website, people will come in. Two, Detail. Silly little news stories of 500 words, they're all over the website. The Guardian have just done this new thing as part of understanding where the future is, of running what we call long reads. So these are 6,000 word features. This is what I now do for a living. So I did a 6,000 word piece recently on what's happened to Vietnam since the end of the war. I've just done another about South Africa, which is about to go in. 
Now, the proportion of readers who will wade through a story as long as that is very small, like 2 or 3% of our readers. But those who do will or should get to the end of it and say, ah, now I understand what's going on in South Africa since Mandela. And then they'll come back. This is, the, you see, so you have the brilliant commentator, the long read, and investigations. The, the Guardian kind of stumbled across this through WikiLeaks, the phone hacking, Ed Snowden and the NSA. Suddenly, the number of people hitting our website goes through the roof. But so you think that's a viable commercial model? That yes. Kind of journalism. So what you should, you, there should be a, a rule in every newsroom. Nobody should rewrite anything. If you're going to do a story from a press release, just shove the bloody thing in the paper and say, this is, this is what such and such an airline says today about its thing. And, and we, you, you do a little bit of this. I think a lot of your foreign news comes off Reuters. I don't think you've got a domestic news agency. But don't rewrite agency copy if you're a reporter. Anybody tells you to do that, say, actually, it's against the law that was passed in Auckland that Saturday, or is it Friday, whatever. There has to, so free people's time up to do what's unique and special. Do you see my, what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. Do you agree with it, Tony? I don't know. I think you're being optimistic. I mean, I think well, it's not country, against the law to be optimistic. I thought country. we were trying to raise the tone. <laughs> <laughs> all right. No, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. It's all, it's all going to be fine. Um, <laughs> the confidence, eh? <laughs> Meanwhile, we have... I mean, the option the, is we snuff it. We could go. We really could. We have the rise of, of the, the bloggersphere, and we have a blogger here called Cameron Slater, which you probably... Um, got a f some sort of knowledge and passing of this dirty politics scandal, which I just want to touch on really briefly. Yeah. Um, he, uh, Nicky Hager, an investigative journalist, wrote a book called Dirty Politics, which okay. centered around an attack blogger called Cameron Slater and his links with the Prime Minister's office. Um, Cameron Slater, who writes this whale oil blog, um, actually noted your arrival country. And, and well, just recently? Just yesterday huh. or the day before, I think. Anyway, his In post, affectionate terms? Uh, well, not, not, not derogatory terms particularly, actually. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, Sorry, no, what did you This guy say? reminds me a bit of Kelvin McKenzie. He's actually yeah. got a bit of that kind of tabloid sort of style to okay. it. Um, he, his post said, so everyone's welcoming Nick Davies, this story which <coughs> condemns the hacking of phones, well. yeah. etc. And yet, my emails, Cameron Slater's emails, were hacked okay. and became the source material for Nicky Hager's books. Why aren't these people, the sort of people who go to festivals like this, up in arms about that okay. too? Does he have a point? Uh, well, I think the underlying point is that, that it's complicated. Why should moral life be simple? So I got asked about this the other day. So I, I say this, that none of us journalists, not Nicky Hager, not I, nor Andy Coulson, nor any, any other hack, is above the law. We, we, nobody gave us a license to break the law. I, I always say we're just civilians with press cards. But any civilian does sometimes have the right to break the law. So a very clear example is you're driving a car, the woman in the passenger seat is literally giving birth. This actually happened to me once on the Beltway in Washington, D.C., my partner. Started to That's produce a real Beltway story. Yeah, started to produce my baby Peggy. And uh, you're, you, if you then drive through a red light, as I did repeatedly, <laughs> trying to get her to hospital before Peggy emerged, Nobody's going to, you've broken the law, but no prosecutor, no police officer, no reasonable person is going to say you should be prosecuted. So there are occasions when any of us can break the law and not be prosecuted. So come to the voicemail hacking. If there was a story that said that somebody in the prime minister's office in this country was directly involved with a Russian organized crime group and there was a real threat to the, to the politics of this country, and the reporter needing to prove that could do so only by hacking into the voicemail messages of that official. All of us in this room and the police and the prosecutors would say, okay, you did the right thing. So it's like that, isn't it? It's, it's, it, it isn't, it isn't it, in no way should we get to the point of saying journalists can break the law whenever they think it's a good idea. It ain't on. But there are occasions when they could. So as to whether or not Nikki Hager's right, I can't help you because I haven't read the book and I don't know the detail. So it's, I can't get into the specific, but in principle, Cameron Slater, that's his name, isn't it, is being too simplistic by suggesting, well, if it's wrong to, to hack into voicemail, it must be wrong to do the other. It just depends on whether it's one of those rare cases where breaking the law turns out to be morally right. Does that make sense? That's, that makes a lot of sense. We're going to go to questions in yeah, a moment, but, but, but very quickly before that, I, I can't resist asking you about your close personal friend, George Clooney, yeah. who is going to direct a <coughs> film based on this book. Upside down again. Um, and yeah. uh, that was deliberate. Uh -huh. And <laughs> it's, it's, the screenplay is being written by a New Zealander, Anthony yeah. Carton, in fact. Um, 
you've been portrayed in a film already, the film about WikiLeaks, the name of which I can't remember. David Fifth Thulis. Estate, yeah. Yeah, Fifth Estate. David Thulis did it. Wore, of course, jeans, leather jacket, blue shirt. Yeah. I imagine Nick Davis has one of those wardrobes like Superman where there are about sort of 20 sets of leather jackets and blue shirts. And I'm afraid it's jeans. just one stinking um, leather jacket. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, what, I, what I was going to... The obvious question to ask you is... What, who, 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 who who's gets cast as Nick Davis, okay, uh, intrepid so, journalist, and yeah. what would your advice to be to them about how to play the part? Okay, so first of all, there's this film that Steven Spielberg produced about The Guardian and Julian Assange, which I was very involved in. So uh, I'm, I'm portrayed in it. And this actor, David Thewlis, uh, as the film was being prepared, he, he sent me this really lovely email. Uh, Dear Mr. Davis, uh, a strange thing has happened. I am being offered a significant amount of money to pretend to be you. When, when you see what I look like, you won't think this is a good idea. <laughs> but, he, but he came to see me, and it was odd, actually, because it was quite a strange sensation, because he sat in my study, and he asked me questions, and he was taking notes and really, really watching me, you know, gestures and all the rest of it. And it, it made me feel very self-conscious. In the event, as Toby says... He didn't begin to pretend to be me. He just put on a stinking black leather jacket, a blue shirt, and, and this was David Thewlis. So he must have been told to do that. So as to who it should be, I really don't know. So Clooney's trying to direct this film, and he's got this guy, Anthony McCartan, writing it. At the, whoops. At the moment, it all seems to be going ahead, but it could collapse at a puff of wind. So I, I've been asked this before, and I said, well, it's got to be somebody... Clooney's not playing in it, right? He's just directing. So it's got to be somebody... Well, that's strange. It seems sort of obvious. <laughs> You wouldn't believe the number of women friends who wanted to be around me once this was announced that <laughs> I was working with Clooney. It's just ridiculous. So I, but is this a serious thing? So I, I, I thought it should be Colin Firth, because he's kind of old and English. I know Clooney's told people he thinks it should be Daniel Day-Lewis, mm. but I wouldn't have thought Daniel Day-Lewis would do it because he's a really, really great actor and he's going to want a difficult part. I'm, I'm a bit too simple. You know, he's played really, really demanding parts over you the think, years. I don't think you are that simple. And all that's left is to say thank you very much for edifying and entertaining. Thank you for coming. Thank I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.